I'm excited about this. Um, Son's done a great work putting this together, and I think it's going to be really helpful. I think it's probably going to be the best thing that we've done to help equip each and every one of us to not only be disciples, but to help make disciples. And I I think it's going to be exciting because most of us feel pretty inadequate um, on that front, and this is going to be great. So each week for the next few weeks, you're going to see a little clip about how to do some of these important things. So um, stay tuned. Hey, um, it's good to have the folks out back with us as always and uh, the folks that are watching online and always it's great to have you guys in person. It helps me instead of just speaking to an empty sanctuary. It's terrible to do that. Reminds me of COVID. But the, uh, hey, let me ask you a question. Think back to when you were a child. Did you guys ever wrestle with your siblings or friends until one of you got the other one in a submission hold, like an arm bar, a choke hold, or something like that? Anybody ever, a couple of us? Come on, be honest. Like, we used to do this. And, and do you remember, what did you, what, there was one word you had to say. If you got, got in one of those submission holds, what was that one word? Even if you didn't do this, you probably know this one word. What was the one word you needed to say to get them to stop? Uncle. You had to say uncle, right? Why, why did you say uncle? I have no idea. Like, why uncle? I went in and I did a little research, and I was like, where, what's the origin of this word uncle and why we say uncle to submit to get somebody to, to let us loose, right? And I got conflicting things, so I have no idea. I got nothing to offer you as far as why we say uncle. But the bottom line is, it meant I submit. I give up, right? And so this morning, we're going to look at a submission hold. It's an ancient submission hold that five kings found themselves in. And we're going to see what happened to those five kings. And then we're going to um, look at three um, similarities between these five kings and Jesus, and then five differences between these five kings and Jesus. So we're going to continue through, the, through um, Joshua, and we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can do that. If you want to use one of the church Bibles, it begins on page 216. Now, um, it's a long chapter. So here's what we're going to do. I, I'm going to you know, walk us through most of it. And then the last portion of it, I'm just going to summarize for you. But I want to encourage you to go back and read the whole thing because I don't want you to miss out on any of the details of it. So we're going to begin Joshua chapter 10 at verse 1. <clears throat> now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So if you've been with us as we've been following Joshua and the Israelites through their conquest of the Holy Land, you've seen that, that they took this fortified city of Jericho and, and they killed the king and all the inhabitants. And then they moved on from Jericho and they went to Ai. And 
after a, a mishap, they, they eventually captured the city of Ai and they burnt it. And they captured the king and killed him and all the inhabitants of the city as well. <clears throat> now, probably the next city that they're going to take was Gibeon. But, but the Gibeonites, they were, they were sly, they were tricky. And so they came to, to Joshua and the leaders of Israel, and they fooled them. They scammed them. And, and, and they got them to enter into a peace treaty with them, not knowing that they were their neighbor. And so now they become these unlikely allies, if you will. Well, the king of Jerusalem has heard about all these different things that have happened. And um, Gibeon happens to just be sort of north and west of Jerusalem. It's rather a strategic location if you were going to try and take Jerusalem. And so he knows that, and he realizes that now that they're allies with the Israelites, that if he doesn't attack them first, then he may be subject to them. And it reminds me of, of like the World War II. You remember when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, it was a strategic move, right? They were trying to neutralize Pearl Harbor and even use it for their purposes there. And I think that's what the king of Jerusalem was doing. He was going to attack Gibeon because of its strategic location, but he wasn't a, a dummy. He realized that he needed additional forces to help him, and so he enlisted the, the help of four other kings in the southern part of the promised land. So let's see what happens next. Look at verse 5 with me. So then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So the battle has begun. The attack is underway. And word has made its way to Joshua, who is encamped in Gilgal, which is right near Jericho. So verse 7. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Now, fortunately, it, it appears that Joshua and God are in close communication with one another during this time. Because we've read before, that's not always the case, right? In all the odd chapters, it seems to be like Joshua and the Israelite leaders, they failed to consult God, and it never went well for them. Well, this time, Joshua and God are consulting with one another, and we're going to see how it turns out. If you look at verse 9, it says, After an all-night march, so all night they're marching from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw, did you see that? The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. Now, let me show you on a map, because this is not just some fable. This is, this is real life stuff. This is where it happened. Um, so let me see. Here's Bethlehem, Jerusalem. Uh, where's Jerusalem? Somewhere in this general area. Over here is Gilgal. 
Oh, there's Jerusalem. Is that Jerusalem? I can't even see this thing. Never mind. Jerusalem's down here. And then Beth Horn is up here. So that's where they, they headed. And they started heading north. And um, then they're going to they're gonna chase these kings down through this valley. So this is all the hill country. And they're going to chase them down in this valley down into here. So that's, that's what's going on. So as they fled, this is verse 11. This is what's happening. It says, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horn to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail then were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Listen to that again. It said, The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. I doubt Joshua ever considered that God was going to help him defeat his enemy by raining down hail on them. Would you? So often we forget, I, I believe, that God has all the elements of heaven and earth at his disposal. That he can use any means necessary to bring about his good purposes. How often we forget that. And, and when God's saying, I, I've got this, he means, I've got this, and he can use ways that we would never even imagine to bring about his greater purposes. And that's what he was doing for Joshua and the Israelites here. Listen to um, what it says beginning in verse 12. Now, this is the cool thing. Like, if you thought the hailstones were impressive, watch this. Uh, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, so Joshua's getting a little more bold. He says, sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. Now, this is a secular historical book. So this was an event that happened in history that was recorded not just in the Bible, but in secular history, and he's referring to that. It said the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There was never a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. I don't think we pray big enough prayers. I don't think we pray big enough prayers. Have you ever thought about praying a prayer that big? I mean, Joshua was bold, and he said, Son, stand still. Moon, stop. Because we need the light of day to avenge our enemies. And God said, May it be so. May it be so. And, and I wonder... Do we just pray small prayers, or do we pray big prayers? You know, we, we talk around here about um, like a frank list, you know, where we make a list of friends and relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers, people that we would love to see come close to God, maybe people that we think they're just so far from God, there's no way they would ever come to God. But I wonder if we would just make a list and actually begin to pray over it, what God might do. 
Or, or how about this? What if we began to pray that every man, woman, and child in the Roanoke Valley would have an opportunity to see, hear, and experience this thing we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that, that Sutton was introducing to us? I wonder what God might do in our valley if we just started to pray some bigger prayers. And I wonder what he might do in our lives and in our church and around the world. I think we pray too small of prayers. Just look at Joshua's boldness and look at what God did. Now, continue with, with me in verse 16. It says, Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. And no one uttered a word against the Israelites. And so we've got these five cowardly kings, and they've abandoned their people, and, and they're hiding in this cave. And, and it reminded me just of recent events of like the president of Afghanistan and how he quickly abandoned them and ran away to protect himself and left his people at the mercy of the Taliban. That's what those kings were like. They were just huddled up, seeking their own safety, their own well-being. Well, it continues in verse 22. These are some encouraging words that, that God gives his men. I mean, uh, Joshua gives, gives his men. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Now, having your foot on the neck of somebody was a submission hold. It was an ancient submission hold. Actually, the word to submit means to stretch out the neck, to stretch out your neck. So to submit is to bend the neck, to stretch out the neck. And the way that would happen in ancient times when you were in, in battle and you had been defeated, you had been submitted, what you would do is you would come before you know, the king or whoever it was and, and you would just bend your neck. It was a sign of submission, and you were acknowledging them that they were your conqueror, they were your king, they were your lord. That's what it is to submit, to bend the neck, to stretch out the neck before them. That's what was being forced upon them, because these kings, they did not submit willfully. They did not submit willfully. So the foot had to be placed on their neck. They were going to submit one way or the other. They could do it willfully or they could do it forcefully. It was the latter that they experienced. The foot 
on the neck. Now, I want you to remember that because um, that's what it means to submit. And oftentimes, we, we read in the Bible, too, and we deal with this. You know what the opposite of that is? So if, if you're not submitting, you tend to be stubborn, right? What's, a, what's another term we use for stubborn people that has to do with the neck? Stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. See how they go together? So to submit is to bend the neck, but to not submit to be stubborn is to be stiff-necked. Look at the correlation there. Now, verse 25, um, Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. So he's speaking to his army commanders. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. Remember that? Remember when God was telling Joshua early on, be strong and courageous. Now Joshua is telling his men, be strong and courageous. He said, this is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles. And they were left hanging on the poles until evening. You know, if you look at a couple different translations, the, the English Standard Version and the King James Version says, instead of poles, that they put them on trees. On trees. And I want you to, to notice that and remember that as we continue on. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the poles or the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. Now, that takes us to verse 28. And if you look at 28 all the way to the end through 43, what you're going to see is this conquest of how Joshua and the Israelites conquered the southern region of the Holy Land. So that's what's happening there. You can go and read the details of it, but I just want to give you that summation there. What I want us to look at now are three similarities between these five kings and Jesus and three, three um, dissimilarities, what differences, if you will, between those five kings and Jesus. So three similarities Three differences. Here's the first similarity, and, and I just want to draw this out in case you missed it. So the five kings submitted to their, to their enemy, and they were put to death. Jesus submitted to his enemy, and he was put to death. Notice the similarities. They both submitted to their enemy and were put to death. Here, here's the second one. The five kings hung on poles or trees until sunset what happened to jesus he hung on a cross or a tree until sunset interesting third similarity the five kings dead bodies were placed in a cave or a tomb and a large stone or large stones in their case were rolled in front of it what happened to jesus his body his dead body was placed in a cave or a tomb and a large stone was rolled in front of it. Notice these similarities, and I don't think they're coincidental. This is the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of God's story. Like everything is purposeful. He, he's got all these connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Watch this. So now look at the differences with me. So the first difference, the five kings submitted unwillingly to their enemy, but notice that, Joe's, uh, that Jesus submitted willingly to his enemy. So the first group, they submitted unwillingly. Foot on the neck, Jesus submitted willingly. Secondly, 
Um, the stones in front of the tomb of the five kings, they were never rolled away and their, their bodies remain there. But the stone in front of the tomb of Jesus, it was rolled away. And he got up and he walked right out, never to die again. Notice the difference. And then this last one is really important. The death of the five kings was followed by the penalty of death and destruction for all of their followers. Joshua and the Israelites went and wiped them out, right? But notice what happened at the death of Jesus. We received this gift, this gift of everlasting life for all of his followers. Quite the contrast between the kings and the king of kings. Now, um, those five kings, at, at first glance, they appeared to be undefeatable. I mean, they were massive, um, far outnumbered the Israelites. Uh, I'm sure they appeared to be better equipped. They were trained warriors and soldiers. I'm sure they had better weapons. It looked to be a helpless battle against evil. And yet Joshua and the Israelites emerged victorious. They emerged victorious over this foe that seemed undefeatable. Why is that? It's because the battle was God's. The battle was God's. The battle belonged to God. Just like that song we sang in the very beginning, the battle belonged to God. And um, I think the same is true for us. This is the encouragement that we have. See, when all we see is the battle, God sees victory for us. And, and when all we see is the mountain, well, God sees the mountain moved. And when we walk through the shadow, God's love surrounds us. His love surrounds us. And then there's nothing to fear for us. There's nothing for us to fear because we're safe with him. We're safe with him. See, we're safe with Jesus. And the reason we're safe is because he defeated the enemy. Even when it looked like the enemy had defeated him, in essence, Jesus really had defeated him. And, and I want you to listen to some words of encouragement from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It, it says this, beginning in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, he's the first one to rise. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So he's going to return. And the dead in Christ, the followers of his that have already died, they'll raise next. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That means all evil he will destroy. And, and I want catch this. Listen to this again. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies, where? Under his feet. Under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Do you pick up on the imagery there again? Everything 
in heaven and in earth will be subject to Jesus and is subject to Jesus. Everything at one point or another will submit to Jesus, either willfully or forcefully. And if he has to put his foot on our necks, he will do it. But see, we have been given this great gift of grace through Jesus Christ that if we willfully submit to him, if we will bend our neck, bend our will to him, then we get to experience eternal life with him. That's what 1 Corinthians was talking about, that he has defeated evil and sin and death. And so that if we are a follower of his, we no longer need to fear any of those things. They no longer have power over us. We actually have power over them. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, um, just like the song points out, th this battle belongs to God. See, sometimes we fail to see that we are in the midst of a battle, and it's not a battle against flesh and blood, right? It's not this physical battle against a foreign nation. It's a spiritual battle against good and evil. But the battle belongs to God, and we don't fight it in our own strength. If we fight it in our own strength, we will lose the battle. The point is that we fight recognizing that the battle belongs to God. We fight under submission to God. We allow Jesus to fight for us. And so when we fight the battle, just as the song says, we're supposed to fight on our knees. We're supposed to fight with our hands lifted high. We're supposed to fight in submission to God with our neck bent and stretched out before him. This is the posture of how we are to fight the battle because the battle is his. And I'm afraid sometimes we lose sight of that. We lose sight of that and we feel beaten and battered and bruised because we're fighting in our own strength instead of allowing God to fight for us. And we have lost sight of the fact that prayer is incredibly powerful. And our prayers are way too small. Think about the prayer of Joshua and how God honored it and basically stopped time so that they could be avenged. One more thing that I, I was thinking about these five kings and what they represent. You know, they went into this this cave, and they're, they're hiding in there in this darkness. They're evil. They, they oppose God. They oppose God's people. They were trying to destroy God's people. They were evil, sinful, and they wanted to bring death. And I think those five kings might represent some of the hidden sins in our life, the things that we try to keep hidden in darkness. Um, I, I think about maybe the sin of idolatry, right? It's something we try to keep hidden. We may say, you know, you know I worship God. I, I, I put God first in my life, but do we? You know, maybe there's a hidden sin of idolatry where we really worship some possessions or some people more than we worship God, but we think we can keep that hidden, right? We can put on a good smile, show up at church, do the things that we think we're supposed to do, but really, there's this, this hidden sin of idolatry. Or how about another one? How about envy? You know, the sin of envy. 
It, it can appear to be hidden, but it manifests itself eventually. There's a, the hidden sin of, of lust, right? And, and that could be a lust for another person. It could be lust for things. And oftentimes we think we have keeping that sin hidden. But we probably haven't. How about the sin of greed? Of greed. And then there's this other sin that I, I think is at the root of all sin, and it's the sin of pride. And oftentimes we try to keep that hidden from, from others and, and maybe even from ourselves, but you can't. You can't. Eventually you'll be exposed. I think that's perhaps what those five kings hidden in that dark cave represent, these hidden sins of ours that oftentimes have power over us because we haven't exposed them to the light. And here's the thing. This is the power that we have now because of Jesus Christ, if you're in that relationship with him, that when you feel idolatry in your life, just put your foot on it. Just put your foot on it. When you feel envy rising up, put your foot on it. When you feel lust bubbling up inside of you, put your foot on it. Or greed, put your foot on it. And when you sense your pride taking over, put your foot on it. Put your foot on it. Because there's victory in Jesus. The battle is his, and he has won the battle for us. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fear the enemy because nothing's impossible for Jesus. The battle is his, and he's won it. So let's live these victorious lives. Start praying some bigger prayers. Stop being fearful and feeling like we are victims when we are the victors. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for just the, the richness of, of your entire word from beginning to end. We thank you for the connections between the Old and the New Testament, and we thank you for the way Jesus is the culmination of all things. Lord, we thank you that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him and, and the victory that we have through this relationship with Jesus. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to fear sin or death. We don't have to fear evil even, that if we will just bend our knee and lift our hands and, and just bend our necks to you. Instead of being stiff-necked people, stubborn people, Lord, we can experience victory and life to the full. I thank you so much for your goodness and your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.